truest, if not the truest meanings of this season that God came near, that we, we see what happens when Jesus comes near. And even that, the word Emmanuel means God with us. A couple of verses I'll show you to start. One from Isaiah, the very next chapter from where we were, talking about the coming Messiah, talking about Jesus. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years later, when that actually happens, it's remembered, oh, hey, God said this thing a long time ago. And in Matthew chapter 1, 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son. They should call his name Emmanuel. And, and Matthew helps us here by saying, which means God with us, or another way of just saying, when God comes near. That's one of, if not the meaning of Christmas, when God comes near. So we're going to look at, in Isaiah 6, how, how, how this happens, what, what happens when God comes near. And really, as I was talking with Pastor Scott earlier this week, we have to first look at what happens when people go near to God. What happens when we try to approach God? That's what we're going to see. And so we're just going to walk through verse by verse, um, as is our, our custom often. And so Isaiah has this vision, the fancy you know, scholarly term is a theophany, uh, right? I think I'm right on that. I'm looking for someone that would, yes, okay. Um, right, this vision of God, Theo God, this vision of God. Some people are like, oh, was he actually like in the throne room or does he have this vision? Either way, what he's seeing is, is 100% true and, and reality. And so he sees this vision in the year that King Uzziah died, which is, um, most scholars were saying, this is kind of an odd, like, why would he put that in there? Is it just a marker? Um, Isaiah like his, his book was written, or at least covers, probably a 200-year period of time. And so it's, it's very specific that he would throw this in here. What's happening? The year that King Uzziah died, 740 BC, um, since that is, makes a lot of sense to you and is relevant. Uh, 15, 20 years later, Assyria came and, and took, off, took away part of the kingdom uh, of God's people, the northern part. Maybe 150 years or so after that, Babylon comes along. And so again, there's a huge range of time that this is covering, and, and Isaiah is really, really particular to point this out. So who is this King Uzziah guy? You don't have to turn there, um, but in 2 Chronicles 26, we find some info about this guy. And he was actually a pretty decent king uh, overall compared to some of the other kings that, that Judah, the nation of Judah, had. Um, he, he really, he helped the, the nation grow, helped them expand, protected them from enemies, was doing a lot of good, a lot of good stuff. And I'll just read this in 2 Chronicles 26, starting in 16. I don't have this for you up on the screen, but it says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. How's that for, a, for an epitaph on your on your tombstone. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. One of the priests goes in after him and says, hey, king, this is not for you to do this, but only for the priests. Uzziah was now angry and essentially, yeah, he became leprous. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and he was excluded from the house of the Lord. So this guy, King Uzziah, he enters the temple and it's like really bad really bad news. He comes out with this, some sort of skin disease. Leprosy was kind of a term to cover a whole bunch of different skin diseases um, that represented him being unclean. And so he goes in with this pride, and Isaiah's bringing that to, to mind. In the same year that he ended up dying from that leprosy, Isaiah's like, hey, let me, let me tell you about my experience going into the temple. It's totally different. Totally different. And yet, put up that first quote, Tim. Here, here's, as, as we think about it, even the nation Uzziah was a good king, and then he doesn't finish well. This is what is said about that. Judah had no known king like Uzziah since the time of Solomon, a long time before that. He had been an efficient administrator, an able military leader. Under his leadership, Judah had grown in every way. He'd been a true king. How easy it must have been to focus one's hopes and trust upon a king, a leader, a government, political figure like that. What will happen then when such a king dies? And coupled with that, death there comes the recognition of a resurgent Assyria, one of the enemy nations pushing nearer and nearer. In moments like that, it's easy to see the futility of any hope but an ultimate one. No earthly king could help Judah in that hour. And in the context of such a crisis, God can more easily make himself known to us than when times are good and we're self-confidently complacent. So even like the first four words of Isaiah 6, he, he's already pronouncing a, a sort of judgment over God's people. Hey, you would put your hope in this, this leader, this political figure, let me tell you about the true king that actually sits 
on a real throne. And that's where we enter into him saying, mine eyes have seen the king. Isaiah is so intentional with his words there. And I see the Lord sitting upon a throne. So what does this scene look like? Back to Isaiah 6. What does this scene look like? Tim, put the, the first couple of verses up there. Um, th- there's, it's almost like words just fail Isaiah as he tries to describe this. The Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, right, elsewhere. And, and if you're looking at a, at a Bible, there might be a footnote that, that has uh, next to the train, meaning the hem, the hem of the, the robe, the hem of the pants that Gad was wearing fills the temple, right? Like how big, what size pants are those for the hem to fill the temple, right? Like very, very, lots of X's, L's. Thank you, Drake, uh, Dre. Like, like he's, looking at, he's looking at his feet and it fills the temple. And this just wasn't like, you know, a, a small little room. I mean, this was, this was a giant temple. And notice there's no other description of God. Like it doesn't, he, his, his appearance, the, the description of his appearance doesn't rise any higher than his ankles. And there's a couple of different, is this, is this legitimate? Is this train actually filling the temple? Or is it his glory? Is that just a euphemism? Like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, it's beyond words, beyond description. Did his robe actually fill the temple? Who really cares? God was the one that was ultimately filling the temple. This platform was, was probably 15 feet in the air where his feet were let alone the throne on top of that. Again, Isaiah just has no words to describe the ankles of the Lord, how much more the fullness of his glory that he doesn't even get to see. But this temple, is there's a, a significance that he's in the temple where heaven actually touches earth. That's the, the meaning of that temple. And then we've got these, these angelic beings, this seraphim. Each had six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, two he flew. What in the world is that? In, in ancient Near Eastern iconography, which is about symbols and hieroglyphics and all that, there was this sense that, that angels and beings like this would be present with a, a deity, with a divine being, using their wings to protect that divine being from any outside threats or sources. Which, when we think about the protection that God needs, like that's laughable. Right? They are not protecting the Lord with their wings. They're protecting themselves. They're covering their, their face. They're covering their eyes. Because even these wild beings that, that we would probably stand in awe at, they, they can't even look upon the Lord. They can't even look past the train of his robe. They're covering their feet, which there's some debate on what ex- was it their actual feet, just representing their whole body, the whole rest of themselves. They're trying to protect themselves and their only, their only duty, because they can't protect, they don't need to protect the Lord, their only duty is to hear what God says, right? Emphasis that they didn't cover their ears, and then to just respond and to shout back and forth this, this call of holy, holy, holy. And as they do that, there's this sense of, of repetition in, in the Hebrew language especially, even in today when, when we repeat something, we're trying to emphasize something like that. Maybe you know someone that repeats a lot of the things that they say. If you know me, then I do that. And sorry, sometimes I repeat a lot. But the point was to, to express superlative or to indicate totality. And so even in other Hebrew scriptures the, or, and elsewhere in the Bible, there's, when words are, are repeated, there's an emphasis like, hey, don't miss it. You don't have to turn there, Genesis 14. There's a phrase where it's talking about, uh, I don't even, I'm not even sure what the context would be, uh, where it says pits, pits. And the, the translation is just full of pits. But it, it doesn't actually say full of pits. It's just the word twice, but that's what it means. Elsewhere in 2 Kings, there was a, a scene where they were, um, they had some gold. Maybe that's where they were building part of the temple. And the, the actual language is gold, gold. It has those words twice, but we would translate it as pure gold. So there's, there's a sense in which we're not actually translating it literally, but that's because the literal translation isn't what was actually being communicated. The repetition serves to be a superlative, serves to emphasize that, hey, this, is, this gold is as pure as it can get. The, the pits, there's just, it's full of pits. Holy, 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 it's as holy as it can get. And yet what's fascinating, I did not know this. This is, there's only two places where there's a, a three-time repetition in Scripture. Right here, where these... These angels are calling holy, holy, holy. And then in Revelation chapter four, at the very end, 
where it's basically repeating this line. I did, I did not know that. I thought, there were, I, thought, I thought this would be the only one, holy, 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 but it would be a lot throughout Scripture. There's only two places, right here and at the very end. And one, one commentator pointed out, again, words just failed Isaiah to describe how absolutely magnificent and majestic God is. He has to make a super superlative. He has to make up, essentially, some sense of way to describe, again, the train of God's robe. Like, he just doesn't even have, he doesn't even have words. And then we see what happens around him. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. Again, there's a sense that Isaiah, again, he's not even allowed to look on God. It does say that in Scripture. No one, God says, no one can look on me and live. The smoke is, is, is a grace of sorts to protect Isaiah, but just the whole room around him is just falling apart, shaking, earthquake. One commentary I read this week, I love this, saying shaking is the customary reaction of earth to the divine presence. It's almost like the earth is... Like, what else could creation do in front of its maker but just utterly fall apart? Look at what happens when we try to come near to God. We see what happens with Uzziah. Now we see what's happening with Isaiah. Like, and he hasn't even tried to do anything. He's just standing there. And it's just utter majesty, magnificence, wonder. We don't even have words to say it. Isaiah doesn't even have words. He has to start making up phrases. That's the scene. That's what it looks like. So then, wh- what? How does he? How does he respond? Right? If that's the. If that's the scene of the temple. Yeah, if that's the scene of the temple, how does he respond? Well. He says, "Woe is me." For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, we don't have any indication that he actually saw the Lord of hosts in in his completeness. He just saw the hem of the train of his robe, the hem of his pants. And yet he he uses this word here, um, woe is me for I'm lost. Elsewhere I think it says for I am ruined. And the actual meaning of that word is, is to be silent. As, as in the same way that one is silent following a disaster or a death, right? And if you think about, I grew up in Florida, so we experienced plenty of hurricanes. Um, if you, perhaps you grew up in the Midwest and you experienced tornadoes or, or some kind of crazy blizzard in the Northeast, whatever kind of natural disaster you, you've experienced or even seen on, on the news or something, right? And imagine uh, people as they kind of reemerge out of whatever it is, a tornado shelter, out of, a, out of a house after a hurricane, and there's just this, like, it's just almost, the destruction is almost hanging in the air. There's just this silence that's palpable. Like, that's what Isaiah is trying to communicate here. Not only is he trying to make up words because he can't even describe it, what he's looking at and what he's experiencing, but inside, because he recognizes this uncleanness, he, he, he's not even going to try to write it off or to justify it or excuse it. Like, he's just utterly silent about his own state before God, which is so unlike what we do in the world today. So often, right, and I'll just, I think this is general about humanity, but even in my own heart, there, there's a sense of trying to defend or minimize my sin. Like, it's not really that big a deal. Like, I'm not as bad as those people over there. There's a sense to justify and excuse. And Isaiah just says, just be quiet, just stop. And yet, like, the, the reality is Isaiah in, in a lot of ways, is, he's, a, he's a, a prophet here of God. He's a priest. He's representing God to the people, representing the people to God. Like, he's probably the holiest man in, uh, among God's people. Like, for him to say he has a man of unclean lips, like, he's, he's probably, maybe this was, maybe he's lying right here, and there's his unclean lips. Like, he's probably not being totally truthful. He's probably the one that has, that has it the most together, that would most perhaps deserve to stand before God. And what does he recognize about himself? And what does he recognize about the people that he lives among? Look at this quote from another commentary this week, the second one there, Tim. I thought this was just really good. Isaiah recognizes with sickening force that his character is not any more than is his people's in keeping with God's character. 
Their lips do not belong to God, else they would continually pour forth praise like the seraphim. Why then are the lips unclean? Because that of which they are an expression of the heart, the will, don't belong to God. And that which God possesses is clean, for it is like him. Thus, it's not merely purification of the lips which is necessary, nor is it mere ritual purification, some sort of rite, or let me just make up for this. In some way, sin and iniquity must be removed if Isaiah and his people are ever to serve God with clean lips. It's not just putting on some sort of spiritual chapstick over the, the uncleanness of his lips. Something has to be done and dealt with. And again, Isaiah is coming in as, as one of the ones who would be the most holy, the most pure in the land. And he's willing to look in the mirror and recognize that he does not match up or, or have any hope of standing before this God that he's, that he's looking at. And he recognizes how much more so the people as a whole, right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He recognizes our hearts, our, our lips are just representing everything else, right? And so I think of what Pastor Scott was sharing last week, it, it, the ways in which we often try to redefine sin and we try to redefine what is good, literally as they did in the garden, Adam and Eve, redefining what's good and what's evil. And this whole kind of you do you or uh, you know, whatever I want to do is fine as long as I'm feeling good about it and as long as it doesn't hurt too many people and, and just we can take that to all of its ends and it's all just meaningless. And yet this is what lives in our own hearts. Like we, 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 don't, often, we don't often want to let God declare what's truly good. At the heart of any sin, I would argue, is do we actually trust that God is good or not, that he has my best interest in mind or not? It really comes down to what I believe what you believe to be good. Now, the rub is, like, yes, God is good objectively, but the rub is, does my definition of good line up with his? And when it doesn't, like, that's where, that's where we get in trouble. That's where I get into trouble. Is, or, or it's, I just don't want to wait for what he says is good to come, right? And welcome to Advent. And so, but it's like, do we really think we know best? This is the example that comes to mind. Um, John and, and Missy Maurer, who some of you will know, John was an elder here. They went to this church for a long time. Um, they live in Texas now. They were mentors of my wife and I in ministry um, with Athletes in Action at Rutgers, where we work. You'll hear more about that next week. But I remember Missy often saying this um, as we would do some discipleship things on campus, and we would often get to relationships, dating relationships, um, and we would, and on a college campus especially, as we would talk about sex, she would make this point as to, to challenge the student-athletes sitting there that we would be sitting across from and say, let's just imagine that the, the boundary that God has given as it regards sex between one man, one woman, and a marriage covenant for a lifetime, let's just imagine that if that was the one command that everybody in the history of the world always and only ever obeyed, how would our world be different? How would our world be different? I mean, I don't know that anything would be the same. <laughs> Like, how would our world be different if we always obeyed and trusted God in that one, one area as if, we could, as if we could section that off and it didn't affect everything else, right? Like, adultery, not an issue. Murder, less of an issue. Uh, divorce, unwanted pregnancy, abor the abortion, the, the um, STD epidemic, pandemic, if you will. Like, uh, unfaithful, I mean, just go down the list of the things that would be different in our world. And we think we know best like, we think we know what's good. We'll just do it our own way. Okay, well, look what happens. Look what happens. And yet, again, we could assume that Isaiah maybe doesn't actually have unclean lips himself individually, but he's not even focused on the behavior. He's looking at his own heart, and he's willing to corporately repent for his people. He's willing to, as a representative of them, sure, but also just as a member of the community of God's people, he's willing to say, hey, we have done this. We have unclean lips. In two ways, maybe. One, we don't have clean lips in the sense that we're not forever continually pouring forth praise like these seraphim are, but we also actually have unclean lips. Like, we've done bad stuff with our lips. We've done bad stuff with our feet. We've done, we have not honored God or neighbor, right? And what are the things that our church community here and the American church and the global church need to corporately repent of that we don't often want to do, right? There's a laundry list of those things. Finally, just now, I would say, I don't know, in the last handful of, of decades, handful of years maybe, we're moving a little bit more towards repenting of 
the racism that has permeated the American church, permeated the European church. Finally, maybe we're coming to, to grips with that. As we look at the Gospels, I don't think we, I would say this maybe as the, the Western American church, I don't think we could say that we have treated women the way that Jesus treated women. There's something worth repenting of and digging into, and what does that, what does that look like? You know, we could go down the list of the ways in which, and yet how do we, well, I, yeah, but those people, they do it worse than I do. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not like them. Right, Isaiah didn't stand before God and be like, yeah, but Uzziah, like, that guy was really bad. He's like, no, look, we, me, I'm, lo- I'm ruined. I don't even have words to say. How willing are we to stand in front of God in that way? And yet, praise God for more of the passage, for verse six. Like, look at, th- this is what happens when we come near, and yet look at what happens when God starts to come near, represented in the seraphim. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. There's, oh, there's so much here, so much here. There's this sense that the, the fire, the coal, represented a purification process, a, a sense of the atonement. I preached about that a few weeks ago in our, in our Grammar of Faith series, that the, the righteous requirements for, for Isaiah's sin, that the, the, the coal represented the, the need for that required by God. It also represented the forgiveness and the cleansing that Isaiah himself needed. Fire, of course, can be a great blessing, but it's never easily, easily controllable. It can cleanse, but it can also destroy. It is fascinating to just sit and even look at a, at a fire in a, in a fire pit or something, but it's also terrifying. It's like, please stay contained in there. So it is with the holiness of God that elsewhere in Scripture it says our God is a consuming fire. And yet, I, I would say, he, I, yeah, I think we could say this biblically. He doesn't want to consume us, but in our unholiness, we are worthy of being consumed as Isaiah points out here. And yet it is, instead of being utterly consumed, God decides to use that fire, if you will, to purify Isaiah. God doesn't reveal himself to destroy us, but to redeem us. Do we actually want that, though? We have to be able to admit, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean, fill in the blank, whatever it is. And yet I love that like, God is not afraid of our mess. He's not afraid of our sin. He, he goes to the very place, the very specific place that Isaiah confesses as unclean. That's where that, that angel takes the, the coal. Did you catch that? He touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. And again, there's a sense that the lips represent all of who Isaiah is, all of who the people are. But I, but I love that it's that specific, to go to the very place where he confessed Right, look at the beautiful things that happen when we come near to God and when he comes near to us. Atonement to the very place he confesses is unclean. I would say the same to you. God is not afraid of your mess, whatever it is. I'm a man of unclean, again, fill in the blank. God is willing to bring that burning coal. And yet there's an emphasis on the burning part. Like this probably wasn't, this probably wasn't pain-free, right? Like the angel doesn't grab it out of the fire himself and carry it over there like he's using tongs. How do you think it felt on Isaiah's lips? It wasn't, it wasn't pain-free. I think of uh, great theologian C.S. Lewis and many works that he wrote and Chronicles of Narnia, of course, one of, the, one of the greatest of all time. And there's a scene, I don't remember which book it is, but there's a scene where this obnoxious, very obnoxious kid, Eustace is his name, a character in the book, uh, is turned into a dragon for uh, other reasons that just aren't totally relevant. And he finally comes to this place of like, I am tired of being a dragon. I would like to be a boy again. And he's talking with the God figure, Aslan, the, the great lion in the story. And Aslan's like, okay, I'm, I, will, I will transform you, purify you, if you will, back into a boy. And as Eustace later is describing this, he's describing the claws of this great lion digging into his skin, the skin of the dragon, and ripping it off. And he says, it was the most painful thing that I ever experienced. And yet it was a good type of pain. I believe he says it was like a thorn being pulled out of your, out of your flesh. Like that hurts, but there's also a sense of relief in that he's being cleansed. That's the, that's the picture here. This was a probably very painful, 
kids, don't try it at home with a burning coal. And yet the result was worth it. Isaiah was willing to endure that. And there's this sense that it was in even the way that the language is written, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Love the intentionality of your guilt and your sin. He's just saying, hey, all of it, it's all taken care of. And the way that this sentence is structured in the original language um, is that these things happened instantaneously. As soon as it touched your lips, everything was changed. As soon as your sin and your guilt was atoned for, everything is different. You're welcome now in this place, a comprehensive work of dealing with sin. Compared to Uzziah, who thought he was the big man on campus and he just waltzes into the temple full of pride, Isaiah comes with utter humility and is transformed. That's, that's the requirement for getting in, to recognize that woe is me, I'm unclean. And so where, where do you need atonement? What part of your being? Sure, all of it, we could all say that, but like, is there a specific, I'm a man or a woman of unclean fill in the blank? How would you do that? And then there's the second part of this passage, which is equally as wonderful and beautiful and complex. And all of a sudden now, Isaiah gets to hear this voice. And it's almost like, a lot of the commentaries I was reading this week were saying it, it's, it wasn't almost that, that God was addressing Isaiah, but that God was almost having this conversation within himself among the Trinity. Like, who, who, shall, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah all of a sudden, like, I mean, think about what it was like before. I mean, everything's just falling apart. The smoke is in front of him. He's, these angels are flying around crazy, and all he can see is, is his own sin and the train of God's robe, and now he gets to overhear a conversation amongst the Godhead. Like, this is the absolute transformation that takes place takes sense, take, takes place. And it, of course it makes sense to be like, well, I'll go. Here am I. One more lengthy two-slide quote here that I just think captures it better than I can say it. Tim, can you put that next one up? I mean, this is, this is just the reality here. Having believed with certainty that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by the very holiness of God, and having received an unsought-for and unmerited complete cleansing, what else would he rather do than hurl himself into God's service? Those who need to be coerced are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. So unlike Adam and Eve who sought to hide from the searching voice, Isaiah permitted for a moment to eavesdrop on the counsels of God cannot keep silent. Here's a total, totally opposite now. Such a grateful offering of themselves is always the cry of those who have received God's grace after they've given up hope of ever being acceptable to God. That last line, friends, that's, again, that's the way in giving up hope of ever being acceptable in our own terms, giving up justification, minimizing, denying, all pointing fingers about our sin and just saying, I, I'm a man, a woman of unclean. And then the transformation happens. And then, it, well, yeah, I'll go. I wanna take that to other people. That's what it's about. That's what Isaiah does. That's what he signs up for. And so, man, he's gonna have this fruitful ministry and lives are gonna be changed. He's gonna hold out this transformation. Every, you know, everybody's gonna come back to God and worship and it's gonna be great, Right? No, look at his calling here. God says, great, I want you to go. Let's talk about what's gonna happen. No one's gonna listen to you. You're gonna preach and you're gonna tell them and they're gonna see and they're not gonna see and they're gonna hear and they're not gonna understand. And I don't actually want them to do that. Their hearts are gonna harden because I've got greater purposes. That's like a whole nother sermon series and I'll try to touch on it briefly here. But look at, look at verses nine, 10, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing and don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, blind their eyes. Right, if you're Isaiah, it's like, really? I gotta go do that? Like, can I, get, can I get something? Right, can I get like a couple of pictures that I can post on social media of like some success so that people, more people will come, you know? What in the world is happening here? Right, Isaiah really, he faced the, the preacher's dilemma that if the hearers are resistant to the truth, Really, his only choice is to keep saying it, but that's at the risk that they're gonna reject it further and harden their hearts more. And yet, that was his task, to bring the word of the Lord with, with clarity, with truth, to not be so concerned about the fruitfulness and instead to just be faithful, to be focused on his own faithfulness. But why, why, would, why would God do this? That's not an easy answer. I don't really, that's, it's, it's complicated. And yet, the people had maybe 
quickly, the, the people had repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly turned away from God, had, had gone after other gods, little, little g, lowercase g, these other gods. And there's a sense in which God's saying, okay, judgment is going to be, see what life is like if you really worship them. If you really want to be a part of the cultures and the communities that worship that God, go ahead. And yet, it's not ultimately to destroy those people, to, to destroy his people. It's that they would taste and see that those other gods are not good and that he ultimately is the one that's good with a capital G. And even though his people are not seeing, are not hearing, are not knowing, there's a sense that this harkens back to Exodus chapter two, you don't have to turn there, where God's people are enslaved in Egypt for centuries, they're crying out. And it says, God heard their groaning, the end of Exodus 2, God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with his people, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And even though his people now are no longer remembering or seeing or knowing, like God still does. And yet he's willing to let them go so that they can ultimately come back. And Isaiah, it's his job to tell the people this. It'll, it won't make it easier for them to believe the truth. It'll make it harder, more difficult. But even if the truth, one commentator said it, even if the truth could not save the present generation, it could, if faithfully recorded, save future generations. Isaiah's commission, again, is to be faithful, not successful. Anybody ever been encouraged by anything written in the book of Isaiah? Then, like, mission accomplished. Isaiah was faithful. Praise God for that. Some of my favorite passages in Scripture are in Isaiah. This, this disease of pride had gone so deeply that it didn't really matter what Isaiah said that people were gonna mishear it. That doesn't happen in our day and age, though. We don't, we don't experience that at all. Pride so that I mishear what someone is saying. No one here, maybe not in this building, but you know, down the road, across the way. Right? And yet this, this sense of like faithfulness over fruitfulness over not being focused on success, that doesn't compute for us in the West. Like, we, that's just, right? And, and I, I work in athletic ministry, so, like, we're, you know, athletics obviously are all about winning bigger, better, faster, stronger, and that seeps very easily into, into the job of ministry. Throw in social media, and this church has got what? And that ministry's doing this, and they sent how many athletes to camp and all these things, right? And it just, and yet God's call is faithfulness. He takes care of the fruit. We don't have to worry about that. It's not, He's in charge of the fruit. We're in charge of our trust. That's what it comes down to. And so Isaiah is faithful. He goes and does what God has called him to do. And it doesn't look good. In fact, it gets worse. Verses 11 and 12. Isaiah's like, okay, I guess I can do that. But then like, when will things turn around? How, how long? How long, oh Lord? Verse 11. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land's a desolate waste. Verse 12. The Lord... And the Lord removes his people far away. This is, the, this is the exile where he takes them off into other nations. And the forsaken places are many. Okay, but then like it'll be fine, right? There'll be a little bit left over, verse, verse 13. And there will be a tenth that remain in it. There's almost a sense of like this is the tithe. This is what's been left aside for the Lord. And he's like, and even that will be burned again. Isaiah, it's gonna go from bad to worse to even worse. And there'll be nothing left but a stump of a tree. And yet here's where there is hope. The holy seed is the stump. That even from a stump that's been burnt to a crisp, there can still be life down in there. It does, it does beckon the question, does this mean it's, it's the end of God's efforts to save his people? Like, is he just saying, forget it, we'll just send them off? I love the way a scholar this week put it in a, in a commentary. Let's ask another question. Was Isaiah's deadly sin the end for him? No, definitely not. Right, The burning one approached with fire, and when that fire touched Isaiah, the voice said, forgiven. And so even though this burning voice comes to this stump, there is a sense that there is hope. Even within that stump, there is life. Even from, from scorched stumps, life can burst forth. I don't know what your life feels, maybe your life feels like a burning stump right now. Like there can still be life underneath of that. There can still be this holy seed that can grow and bear fruit. Your role is just to remain faithful. Way easier said than done. Who is the one that can ultimately bring that? It's, it's the one who is cried out to as holy, holy, holy. He's the one that gives life. 
and ultimately Jesus is that seed. So with all of that in mind, let's think about Christmas. Like what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Imagine, imagine the, the, the nativity scene, right? And let's even compare that. I hadn't thought about this, so this, I don't know, this might be somewhat theological waters, we'll see. But if we could even call that, that barn or that inn uh, or, or the, the cave a temple, if you will, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to earth. As I think about those two scenes, um, really, like, the only thing that is, that is the same are that there's angels involved. Right? There's these flying, crazy seraphim in the temple in Isaiah, and then there's some angels, multiple angels, in fact, throughout the announcement of Jesus' birth. One to Mary, one to Joseph, a whole host of them to the shepherds, and then everything else is different. Right? Like We saw with Uzziah and Isaiah uh, what happens when people go to God, but look at what happens when God comes near to us. Like There's no shaking of the foundations. It's, it's as quiet and sneaky as possible. And it's like, it's like God's trying to play hide and seek. To- in, the, in the dead of night, totally quiet, he slips in, undetected, but to a bunch of animals and a handful of shepherds. There is, there is the sense in which uncleanness is welcome, like those shepherds, the, the, the dirtiest riffraff of society, are, are welcome to come in and to see this king but even that's different, right? Like there's not this whole smoke screen and like Jesus's uh, swaddling cloth didn't fill the whole, the whole cave, right? He was the same one in the flesh, the same one whose train of the robe filled the temple is lying in a manger in, in utter humility. It's totally different. And yet the other thing that is the same is that God came near. Jesus comes near, as near as he possibly can, to put on human flesh. Those that come to him with humility are welcome. Right? If you think about the Gospels, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus at all, if not, that's okay, but if you're familiar at all, like the ones who are the ones that Jesus most butted heads with in the Gospels, it's the one who thought they deserved to be there. The Pharisees, the religious leaders who thought they had done all the right things. And yeah, I got, I got, some, I got some access to go, into the, to go into the holy places. No, look what happened with Uzziah. It's not the ones that think they deserve to be there. Again, getting in is recognizing, woe is me. Those shepherds, like, they, I, I would argue they would say, woe is me. Who are we to go and see some king after this? These angels came to us? In order to be f- purified or cleansed, we have to recognize and admit the filth. We have to recognize and admit that we need cleansing. Because we are all unclean standing before God apart from Christ. And that, that word for unclean, um, as two words, not clean. And the word for clean there in the original language, in fact, even going back farther to pictographs, there's a sense that there was a, a, a depiction of a bowl of water, that that's what that word for clean meant. And so Isaiah saying, hey, I'm unclean. He's saying, not a bowl of water. Like, I haven't been clean. I haven't been washed. I need a bowl of water. This brings to my mind when Jesus comes and, and washes our feet and washes the disciples' feet. So we've got unclean lips in Isaiah, and then in John 13, we've got this depiction of unclean feet. Go ahead and put that passage up there, because I want to I walk through this. I think there's a lot of parallel here. And so this is now at the end of Jesus' life. This is Easter. Christmas and Easter are connected. And here's what, what happened the night before Jesus died. Now, before the pass, feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he'd come from God, was going back to God. I'm not trying to skip over that because that's all really important, but I want to get to my point. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. There's the bowl of water. And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is, a, this is an utterly astonishing thing. This is the lowest of lowly jobs that one could possibly have in this society. They didn't have nice new shoes and clean streets. It was dirty, dusty. All those animals were wandering around, all kinds of stuff all over the street. Somebody had to wash their feet when they came in. 
And the one whose train of his robe fills the temple is the one getting down to wash feet. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? This is a, like, I'm, I, there is a sense in Peter's like, I, I'm, I, you're, you're too worthy to be doing this. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash, you have no share with me. If you are not clean, then the foundations are going to shake and woe is you and all the stuff. And so Simon Peter's like, okay, I, I think I get that. So he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew it was to betray him. That's why he had said not all of you are clean. That's, leave, it, leave it there, Tim. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. The implication is the one who has not bathed does need to. The one who is unclean needs to have some washing, needs to have some cleansing, needs to have some atonement. And yet if you are clean, if you are in Christ, you don't need to take a bath all over again. Like if he has paid and atoned for your sins, that's a done deal. Isaiah didn't have to go back in the temple, back to the burning coal every time he said something dumb with his unclean lips. It was taken care of. It was taken away. The price had been paid. It was dealt with. We're washed clean by Christ's blood, quite literally, standing before, so that we can stand before God from unclean to clean. But you know what? Every now and then our feet are going to get dirty. Every now and then we're still going to have sin that we need to confess. And so we need to go do that. We need to go let Jesus wash our feet. We need to go say, yeah, God, you know, here I am again. I did this thing again. But you don't have to say, so can you wash me all over again? Can you take all this away? He's like, I already took it away. He's already forgiven us. And so honestly, when we go to confess, when we, if, you're in, if you're in Christ and you go to confess to Jesus that here you are again with whatever sin it is, you're not actually getting more forgiveness. You've already been forgiven, past, present, and future. You've already been you're just getting the forgiveness that's already yours. You're, you're reminding yourself of the forgiveness that's already yours. Just go and get your feet washed every now and then or every day, every, every moment. Right? He's not afraid of your mess. He comes near, as near as he possibly can to like the dirtiest parts of our body, our feet. He says, I'll wash those. I love that. Our feet are washed. And, I, and yeah, I've, this is, this is a, a, almost a, a practice, if you will, that I've tried to start engaging with. When I need to confess something to the Lord, to, to sit there, this happened a couple months ago where I came across this passage and thought about it in this way. I was like, yeah, I, I want to sit there and let Jesus wash my feet. I need to imagine him with joy and delight coming and saying, Ty, I'll, I'll take care of that. I'm gonna wa- you don't need a whole bath. You're clean. But let me just wash this off of you. And so to sit there and just allow the Savior to come near. And you might have to scrub a little bit. That might be uncomfortable. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And to recognize that he, that he covers us and takes it away. And then, where do we go from there? Uh, Tim, put up that last passage of verses there. Romans 10, I love this. After Isaiah had his life totally transformed, what happened? He was sent out. Look at this, the Apostle Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, recognizing our sin, but then he starts to raise some questions. How then will they, anybody that doesn't know Christ, call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they haven't heard? And how are they heard without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, right? It's only those with cleansed feet that go and preach the good news, but how beautiful are those feet? Once we let Jesus come near and say, yeah, my feet are really dirty. Can you clean them up? And he says, gladly. Now who will go? Hey, I'll go. Let's, go. let's go tell people of the cleansing that's available. I love the way one of my mentors used to say it. We're just one beggar telling another beggar where the food line is. We're not saying, hey, you gotta do all these things and jump through all these hoops. and Like, no, just come get clean. That's all it takes. And then we turn around and go out. And yet sometimes... It might feel like, New Jersey maybe especially, might feel like we're just talking and people are seeing and not understanding and hearing and not perceiving. 
And that's where we consider Jesus' sentness. Right? One could argue, prior to Resurrection Sunday, he had a doomed mission. Right? Imagine the Father saying, all right, here's the deal. You're going to go down there. Yes, down there. You're not going to have all this nice stuff in heaven. Just go with me on the kind of fatherly conversation here. Uh, you're going to have to flee for your life like as soon as you're born, right? Born, yeah, born. You, we just, you'll, just, you'll figure it out. Flee for your life multiple times. You're going to have to learn how to walk. You're going to stub your toe a bunch. You're going to get scrapes. Uh, you're going to be tired a lot. You're going to want to take a nap in a boat. Um, the guys that are going to be your, like, group, like, they're going to frustrate you so much, so much, so much frustration. Uh, one of them is going to, you know, one of them is going to actually betray you. All of them will leave you in your moment of greatest need, except for one. Um, so what do you think? What do you think? And we, we think we want to know what's to come. Like, we think we want to know, God, just give me a glimpse of the future. Just let me know what's going to happen. At least I live that way. And it's like, no, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. There's an athlete that I was discipling, that I've been discipling for a couple of years now, and he uh, was a transfer to, to Rutgers. His athletic career has not gone how he's wanted it to. Not at all. And God has gotten a hold of his life. He's done some incredible work. Um, about a year ago, he was going to transfer. And was going was gonna to go somewhere else to try to play because he just wants to play, which, like, I can relate to that. I get it. Like, that's what, you know, whatever your craft is, you just want to do it. And he wasn't doing it. He was standing on the sideline watching. Right around that time, God had started to do some really cool work on his team. And a bunch of guys were starting to come to faith. Guys were starting to, to be discipled. And it, literally in 24 hours, he tells me that he's going to transfer. He's going to leave, which it's like, uh, we just, like, I've spent so much time with you, and now you're just going to leave. And 24 hours later, we're sitting in a discipleship group with some of his other teammates, and, and it was great. We talked about some of the same stuff, about confessing sin and whatever. And he was like, guys, before we go, I got to say, like, as I just watch what God's doing, as much as I want to go play soccer somewhere else, like, I just, I can't not be a part of this. I can't leave. When, when God is working like this on our team, I have to be a part of this which I loved that. Sure, I got to hang out with him for another year. That was great. But it's like, dude, if you, like, I literally told him, if you take that principle with you, that you're willing to give up what you really want to join with God where he's at work, like, that'll serve you for the rest of your life. And maybe two or three weeks ago, I asked him, because for his last year, senior year, like, he didn't play. Uh, he didn't even get to play on his senior day, along with all the other seniors, which is a whole other conversation and, that I'd like to have with his coach. Um, but he hasn't asked me. And so it's not gone athletically how he was hoping. And I was like, I asked him, it's like, if you had known this, if you had known that this is how it was going to go three years ago, would you have wanted any part of this? He's like, no, I wouldn't have wanted to know all that. And yet there was joy that he had because of what God's doing on his team, right? We think we want to know what's going to happen. We want to figure out when's the fruit going to come. It's just better to be faithful. Like all we need to know is that we can come to the one who's willing to clean and wash our feet and then he'll send us back out. that he wants to make our feet beautiful, right? Even if they've been made beautiful a hundred times before, he's willing to get back down with that bowl of water and clean your feet over and over and over and over and over again. And if you've never come to be cleansed, then like, why not do that for the first time? You're not gonna find it anywhere else. Look what happens when we come near to God and when he comes near to us to cleanse us from our sin and then to send us out even though our feet still need to be washed on a daily basis, let him wash your feet. Let him wash your feet daily and then go and tell others, hey, come get in line, and we get to do this thing together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thanks that you, that you do this. You wash our feet with joy, with delight, as much as maybe I try to paint a like, oh, this is gonna be, this is gonna be so burdensome. No, your word says, for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. You endured all of those things. A humble, quiet birth with an audience that could not match what you're actually worthy of. Knucklehead disciples of whom we also raise our hands, and yet it was for joy that you came, that you bore our uncleanliness so that you could give us your 
cleanliness, that you could atone for us, and then send us out with beautiful feet. So God, I pray for any here who are, who are really in need of that cleansing, washing of their feet. God, would they experience that? And for someone who still needs to bathe completely, God, might today be the day, might this season of Advent, where we remember that you came near, might that be a season that changes and transforms our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So on that same night where, where Jesus washed their feet, he also took a couple of elements of food to further portray what he was doing. He took bread and he said, hey, this is my body. It's gonna be broken for you. This wine or that we have juice here as well is gonna be poured out. It's a, it's a new covenant, a new promise that I'm making with you. I'm gonna take your, I'm gonna atone for your sin. I'm gonna let the burning coal touch me and completely destroy me such that you might be purified instead. And so we take these elements here. There's gluten-free options in the middle here with some crackers and bread and juice and wine on the side. You come down these two aisles and go out the, the sides of the room as a way to remember that. But I wanna, wanna, what I wanna ask you to do first is just to sit there and consider how would you fill in that sentence of, I'm a, I'm a man or woman of unclean what? What is it for you this morning, this season of life where you need to, you need to own that in front of the Lord? And then, and then the, the, the fancy term is imaginative contemplation. And if you have you know, theological holdups with that, then I don't know, make it a different term in your mind. But just to let, to just imagine Jesus coming to wash your feet. Like I believe wholeheartedly he wants to do that this morning. Joyfully. I, I would even imagine him ready with that bowl of water, the towel wrapped around his waist, scarred hands still. You just have to say, yeah, Jesus, I need that. I need that cleansing. Would you come wash my feet? And just let him do that. And so just sit there for a minute or two in silence to, to experience that. It doesn't have to be a mystical, magical kind of thing, but I think it's a real spiritual thing. Or maybe, maybe you need that, that bath, the whole thing, right? And either way, when you're ready, you can come and partake of these elements.